Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's all about Vanguard. We'll discuss what's great about Vanguard, what could be improved to Vanguard, and why Vanguard is having a tough year of sales, and a whole lot more. That's with our guest, Jeff Damaso from the Independent Vanguard Advisor. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And with no further ado, let's bring our guest, Jeff Damaso from the Independent Vanguard Advisor. Jeff, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Hey, Rusty. Thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. So quick disclaimer here. Jeff and I did work together for many years back in the day. So it's great to have him on here. And it makes a lot of sense because... Vanguard is a huge player in the industry, and they have a huge presence at Orion. So again, welcome, Jeff. But before we get into all those good questions I just talked about, we have our, I like to think, our most fun question to get started, and that is a walk-up song. We need to imagine this music we can hear as Jeff Tomaso walks up to the plate. What's that song? All right. I'm going one that you probably haven't heard of before, and you got to start it like 30 seconds in. <laughs> that is key to some songs, yep. It is, and particularly for the walk-up, because you only got a few seconds to get to the plate there. But it's Storm by the Yoshida Brothers. Okay, you got me. I got you. Yeah. Give me more. Tell me about it. So it's just acoustic, two Japanese brothers just wailing on some two-string guitars. And it's one of those songs you can just put in your earbuds, put it on when you walk out of the house. And by the time you get to the corner, you're going to feel pretty epic and have a nice beat in your step. Nice. Well, that could be one of our top songs yet. Thanks, Jeff. Pretty cool. You got it. All right. So to really set the stage now for our audience, tell us about you and your firm. Yeah. So, I mean, as a back fan, as you mentioned, Rusty and I've got a, a history there. Rusty was, I guess you hired me, if you can say hired for an unpaid intern. Yep. Back when you but could do that. started as an unpaid intern <laughs> back in the day, just while I was in college, came in day a week just there to learn at a Boston-based registered investment advisor back in 2005. Got my foot in the door. I was hooked. You couldn't get rid of me. I just love the idea that you could listen to some of the best investment minds out there, listen to portfolio managers, hear their thoughts on the market, how they pick stocks. I was like, man, you're going to pay me to listen to this stuff? This is pretty cool. So manager research, I was pretty hooked on on the active side. Uh, I even came out to Nebraska. We worked together for two years. Yeah. And that was about enough time in Nebraska for me <laughs> before moving back east. Yeah. Uh, but then in 2011, I linked up with Dan Wiener and began working with him on this Vanguard newsletter that he'd been writing since the early 1990s. And when you hear investment newsletters, it's it's a, you know, a murky field. There's a lot of stuff out there that I necessarily wouldn't recommend to friends and family and this clearly immediately cut a different path to me in terms of being straightforward, easy to read, long-term oriented, just checked a lot of boxes of things that I would look for. 
And we talked all things Vanguard, mutual funds, ETFs, the good and the bad, which we can certainly get into. But the latest development for us was that in end of September, beginning of October, our old publication got shut down and we've spun out and started up a new online version. It's called the Independent Vanguard Advisor. Again, we think of it as kind of version 2.0, getting to start with a clean slate, going online. We still talk about Vanguard. We have recommendations and our opinions on Vanguard funds, ETFs, take your pick. We try and write in plain English. We don't baffle with BS. You know, I try and write each article as if my mom or my best friend is reading it and want them to to know what's important there. And yeah. that's how we've done it. And that's how we're going to keep going. Awesome. You know, and you're right. I never worked directly on that newsletter, but I can say that it obviously was incredibly well-written, very educational, you know, in terms of helping investors understand the markets and, and how to think about putting together portfolios. And it was true to the being independent, the voice of being independent, and it pulled no punches. So it was entertaining. It had a strong view and it was extremely helpful to many, many investors. So it's good to hear that that sort of advice is continuing. All right. So let's talk about Vanguard. Let's do it. Again, it's the beast in the industry and dominates in so many different ways. So I guess the first question, you cover Vanguard. So what do you like about Vanguard? What are the best things about Vanguard as a company and their products? How much time do we have, Rusty? I know. So I'll probably have to cut you off if you go too long here, but just go for it. <laughs> no, look, there is really, really a lot to like about Vanguard. And yeah. Pretty much like everybody, I mean, low cost investing, bringing that to the masses and not just within Vanguard, but they put fee pressure on other players in the industry. And we can, I think, really thank Vanguard for that general pressure on fees coming down and making it such a great time to be an investor today. Bringing indexing, diversification, those kind of timeless principles uh, are all reasons to like Vanguard, but those are not you know, unique. Everybody likes us about Vanguard. So let me offer just three other things about Vanguard that I really like. One is access to some really great active managers. You know, we can go down the whole active versus passive debate. I tend to think it's more about high cost versus low cost. And what Vanguard has done is brought low cost to active managers and some really great talented institutional quality managers. That doesn't mean every active fund at Vanguard's great and we call out the ones that we don't like and think could be improved, but they do have some some excellent managers on there. And while the whole fee race has largely been played out on the indexing side, I mean, we're quibbling over basis points and pennies at this point on that side of it. There's still a long way to go on the active side and, and Vanguard's still way out in front. Second one is kind of relevant for today in terms of we're coming into capital gain season or in the midst of capital gain season now. And Vanguard is oddly transparent about certain things. And one of those is realized gains. Every month they update for each mutual fund and ETF what the accounting is on realized and unrealized gains for each fund. And I think that's a really nice addition and piece of transparency. And I would love other companies to adopt that. So I definitely applaud Vanguard on that one. And another one, number three, I guess would just be, they do some really nice research and some nice educational pieces. They've done some really good work on Advisor Alpha, which if advisors haven't seen, really talks about all the other things that advisors do. I mean, yes, there's the investment portfolios and performance. And we talk about that a lot with clients. But there's all the other behavior coaching, the planning, the you know, asset location, all those other pieces that add value and you can bring to the table. And, and Vanguard's done a really nice job quantifying that in particular. So they've got some nice research out there too that advisors can leverage. 
Those are excellent points. You know, first of all, on your last point, we have had Vanguard on a couple times talking about some of their papers. They are excellent, as you say. They have invaluable resources for advisors there. And also, I like how you made the point about active management. I've kind of made that point about active management too. I guess there's still the law of active management. If you truly had a closed universe and so many managers, it is a zero-sum game minus expenses. But you know, it's obviously more complicated than that, depending how people are really looking at it. And I think one of the biggest disadvantages active management has had, even though they have proven in various studies they can provide superior stock selection over time, they usually get hampered by things like cash drag and expenses, of course. But the expenses have come down dramatically and they could still come down even more, but that does give more of an advantage to active management, particularly in an environment when you have top heavy indices, which are starting to roll over. We'll talk about markets later on though. So. All right. We talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not sure there's a lot of bad and ugly about Vanguard, but what do you think Vanguard could improve? How much time do you have, Rusty? Okay. Okay. There we have an hour. No, I'm just kidding. We okay. Don't. okay. I'll cut you off again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Look, there's definitely some things Vanguard could improve upon, without a doubt. The biggest one is probably on the customer service and technology side. And this is kind of the other coin of their low-cost effort, where Vanguard has been cutting costs for years and years, you know, they say they run their funds at quote unquote cost, and we can talk about what that means. But it means something's got to give. And unfortunately, Vanguard, that's really been on the customer service and technology side. And I think they've been, you know, in and out on their support for advisors, and they've been improving in that regard. But for a lot of the individuals that I hear from, it's long wait times on the phone, it's tech snafus. And that's a case where I think Vanguard has just grown so fast that they haven't really been able to keep up with the service side. So that's a big one. In terms of transparency, again, I plotted one place where they're really transparent. I think they could do a lot more and be an industry leader in other places on transparency. One would be costs. Expense ratios are rock bottom, right? But could they be even lower? If you take total stock market index and 500 index, just take those two index funds, right? All their share classes, investor, institutional, the average expense ratio paid in 2021 was three basis points. So 0.03. That's great. Awesome time to be an investor. Exposure to the market at effectively no cost. But talk dollars. We're talking $2.5 trillion in those two funds. That's $850 million in revenue or cost to run two index funds. Yeah. Could cost be lower? How are those allocated? Again, can we be more transparent? Could Vanguard lead on that in the industry? Sure. I'd love to see them lead on disclosing fund ownership and board ownership from the managers of the fund. Again, it's there, it's in the statement of additional information if you wanna dig for it, but could Vanguard lead and, and make that more accessible? Sure. Vanguard's annual reports, semi-annual reports, have just gotten watered down. They used to let the managers talk a little bit more about what's going on in the portfolios, but it feels like compliance and lawyers took down and the annual reports are just generic, devoid of much useful information. I think that's a place Vanguard could step up. Yeah, I'll pause there. I could probably keep going, but those are my like top wish list improvements for Vanguard. That's excellent. You know, it's so true about shareholder letters. It used to be a great source of really learning about a portfolio and the personality and learning about the philosophy and the process. And now so many of them are sort of generic. It's just like, they're just checking a box, basically. It's a good point. Yeah, you've got your three contributors and your three detractors. And yeah. That's Okay. Thanks. I know. <laughs> I can run attribution. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's a shocking statistic that I bet a lot of people don't know. And we are recording this in November. And I know this is going to get published shortly before the Christmas holiday. 
And my data is through, I believe it was through the end of October. But the stat came out of, which is really interesting and probably not too surprising, is is a lot of mutual fund shops, and I know Vanguard does more than that, are having significant outflows this year. But Vanguard is actually leading the way, clearly with industry, and having their worst year of sales ever. Now, why do you think that is? I mean, what are your guesses why Vanguard is having their worst year of sales ever? Yeah, well, so they are having one of their worst years. The number that I saw is actually still positive. So they're still pulling in as of October that I saw, somewhere around 70 billion. So we maybe shouldn't shed too many tears for Vanguard. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so why is this their worst year? Few reasons, I think. One is the train had to slow down at some point. I mean, Vanguard was just gobbling up assets for years and years here over the past decade. Really took off since 2008, 2009 as the tide towards indexing really picked up speed. And that pace just couldn't sustain. It had to slow down at some point. So I think this part of it is just train had to slow down. You know, a few other points would be market environment and sentiment is just generally down. And so if investors are pulling back and worried about the markets, Vanguard has a lot of money and there's a lot of people that are going to pull from Vanguard. But also what we've seen is kind of a shift towards alternatives. You know, a lot of the private space has held up pretty well this year. You know, managed futures are having a good year. And the alternative space Vanguard is just not very strong in. Their alternative mutual funds have a pretty spotty track record. They're just not who you think of when you think I need some alternative exposure. They're who you think of when you think of the 60-40 traditional portfolio. And if that's quote unquote dead or in the crosshairs right now, which I don't fully agree that that strategy is dead and done and dusted. But if you're thinking about that strategy, you know, Vanguard is the poster child for it. And then the last point is just you know, money is still flowing into index funds. All of those positive flows for Vanguard are really on the index side. It's their active funds that are fully in net negative outflows. And that's just a continuation of the trend we've seen for the past decade. Yeah. You know, that is a great point. I think my stat actually may have been referring to the actively managed funds as well. So that's a really key distinction. But let's stay on flows a little bit longer, and because I know you've written a lot about these sort of topics, and that is just industry flows in general, and particularly the move from mutual funds to ETFs. You know, some people say that mutual funds are basically just totally dead meat. ETFs are going to take over the world. But what is your take on that? ETFs do have some inherent advantages in terms of its structure. I think there's also a few, I don't know if liability is the right word, but, but there's some issues we can talk about with ETFs as well. Nonetheless, I saw on Morningstar, they're tracking over 3,000 ETFs right now, which I was expecting something with maybe just a two-handle. Um, yep, probably 200. No, I know. <laughs> they do seem to be eating the world. So a few thoughts on fund flows and that we're seeing in the industry. So I'll come back to the ETF question. I think part of it is related on the bond side. It feels like the bond market is kind of having its 2008, 2009 moment. And what I mean by that is, in the global financial crisis, I think we saw a lot of investors say, man, my active manager just didn't do anything for me. So why bother? Why don't I go low cost? I can at least control how much I'm paying. But that story was really all about stocks. People didn't really have that view when it came to the bond market. And I just think investors are looking at their bonds today and saying, man, my bond manager is down 10, 12, 15% too. Like, why am I bothering with this active manager? I should maybe just indexing. So we are seeing a lot of flows towards ETFs on the bond side of things. And so I think that's kind of what's happening there. 
The other interesting development is we're starting to see more active ETFs come out. And I think this is where there's kind of pros and cons to the ETF structures. For a large cap US stock, active manager and ETF structure makes a ton of sense because you can now offer your shareholders at those tax efficiency benefits that comes with the ETF. I'm a little concerned about less liquid areas of the market. You know, Can you do active in a small cap stock strategy? Because how do you then control capacity? How do you shut off the spigot if people really want to come into your ETF? I, I haven't heard a really good way to do that aside from turning it into a closed-end fund, which isn't the point of an ETF. All right. So I have a fun question here for you. This could be really fun. So again, independent Vanguard advisor, obviously you're talking about Vanguard, you're talking about their investment products or mutual funds and ETFs, and you also give guidance on basically how to construct portfolios. And quite frankly, going back to the newsletter that Dan Wiener started back in the 90s, a pretty successful track record of doing that as well. So given that background, what do you really think about Vanguard's asset allocation products? And let's just make sure, like, who would you think consider they're appropriate for? There's a couple of questions in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a few in there. I guess if I had to sum it up and answer in one sentence, I'd say that it's hard to argue someone is making a mistake by picking one of Vanguard's asset allocation products, right? Yeah. Low cost, diversified, going to be consistent in terms of its allocation and the risk level that it's targeting and delivering. You know what you're going to get. You can build expectations around it. You can use it in a financial plan with confidence. So again, there's a lot to like there. I might take issue with how much they have allocated to international stocks and international bonds. It tends to be about 40% of the stock portfolio and 30% of the bond. I think that's high for a lot of real world investors. I know that by market cap or if you run efficient frontiers or you know, the textbook will tell you that that's the right amount. But in the end of the day, investing with real people who have to live in the real world and own their portfolio. That said, at some point, that's going to look so smart having that much in international when the pendulum does swing back. That is going to look really, really good for Vanguard. I would have said that you know three, four, five years ago and uh, would have been the same. It hasn't happened yet, so no call on, on timing there. Who are they appropriate for? Again, I think they're broadly appealing and appropriate for a wide range of investors. Look, I, I have a long history of working and trying to evaluate active managers, and I'm probably going to go to my grave thinking I can pick good active managers ahead of time. But I recommend ETFs and index funds all the time, and they have their uses as well, particularly for someone who is just, again, looking to get exposure to the market, keep costs low, keep things straightforward and simple, and don't feel they have an edge. Right? So if you're going to do anything active in this industry, in the markets, whether that's picking stocks, picking managers, picking asset classes, kind of playing the more top-down game, you need to have an edge. And you need to have a time to do it, a process around it, preferably some people supporting you. And if you have those elements, I think it can be done and you can do active and earn a better than market return. But you've got to be really confident that you've got all those elements in place and that it is working because there'll be times inevitably when it doesn't. And if not, there's, again, absolutely nothing wrong with using an index fund. Like, Plug in you know, your expected return for the market into your financial plan. You know, does that work for your plan? Does that lead you to success in achieving your goals? 
If so, great, you can do that at zero cost with confidence without introducing active risk into your portfolio. And if you don't need to take that risk, maybe don't. Good stuff. You know, I'm glad you mentioned about Vanguard's international tilt. You know, they've always been very disciplined on having that sort of allocation. They've got an excellent white paper for it. And again, you're right on the multi-asset strategies that I'm most familiar with, they're still on kind of the upper end of that international exposure. So that actually explains their performance. A lot of people just think like, again, Vanguard's just beta, just index exposure. And you're right, they've got active management and their asset allocation clearly has tilts relative to others. You know, one thing I wonder about it is, you know, they always had that 40%, but it used to be that the global market because it was kind of 50-50, and then it was sort of 40% non-US. Now it's like 30% non-US. So while, yeah, it's always been a tilt relative to peers, now it's actually a clear tilt to the benchmark too. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, they've ratcheted that up. It wasn't always 40 since I've been following them. They probably started around 20, moved it up to 30, and they've kind of said they've been able to increase it as liquidity in foreign markets has improved, which always said to me that maybe they even want to go further, but we'll see. Okay. Here's a curveball for you. You don't even know this is coming. So you're originally from Wellesley, Massachusetts. Vanguard has a very popular fund, Wellesley Income. How do you rate it in your newsletter? Oh, how do we have it rated in the newsletter? (laughs) You didn't know that was coming. I did. It's Wellesley Income and its sibling fund, Vanguard Wellington are two great, well-run, balanced funds. Yeah, absolutely. They've got super long history. I mean, Wellington goes back to 1929. I'm going to hopefully get to write its 100-year article in seven years here or so in the newsletter. But Wellesley Incomes to 35% stocks, 65% bond portfolio. You know, the equity side tends to be a bit more value-leaning. You get a little bit more dividend payers in there. So that you know made it look a little lagging when growth was really rallying in the end of the market here but it's definitely helped the past 12, 18 months. I guess if there's like a hall of fame of long running mutual funds, it probably has to be considered for that hall of fame over time, but absolutely. Okay. We've kind of touched upon a little bit of this stuff so far, but let's go to market outlook. The independent Vanguard advisor, how are you looking at 2023? And one thing I also want to focus on, of course, because I know you've written about it and some pretty cool stuff is the key topic of inflation. Yeah. What are you thinking about the economy and the markets? It's a big topic. Now, this could be an hour long here too. This could, this could. So I'll give you my outlook on 2023, but let me caveat it for a second with, I always like to try and bring it back to baseline expectations. And if we just look back at what the markets have done historically, stocks are up seven or eight years out of 10. Stocks tend to be bonds and bonds tend to be cash. So if we were to do this every year for the next decade. And I just came in and every time said, yeah, I think stocks will be up. I think stocks are going to be bonds, bonds will be cash. I'm going to miss every bear market, but my hit rate is going to be somewhere around 70, 80, 90%. Like it's going to be a pretty good hit rate. Yeah. So that should be kind of your baseline expectation coming into any year, recognizing that a lot can happen in any 12-month period. Exhibit this past year in the bond market, right? So, okay, outlook 2023 with that said. Yeah. Even though it doesn't feel like it, I think the outlook for stocks and bonds have improved, particularly in the bond market. We're in a bear market. Stocks are down somewhere around 20%. I mean, we've had some volatility here, but stocks are cheaper than they were coming into the year. Prices are down. Earnings have grown, even though earnings growth is slowing. And bonds have been just the source of pain for investors this year, particularly conservative investors who weren't expecting to be able to see something down 
15% from the safe part of their portfolio. But we're now getting income out of our bonds. And if you just simply say, looking forward and try to ignore the past 12 months, you can expect bonds to earn around 4 or 5% over the next decade. And we're talking intermediate term, high quality bonds. And that's just looking simply at its starting yield today and running it forward. So that said, here's the complicating factor. And maybe I'd be curious for your take on this, because what I'm trying to get my head around a little bit here is we're in this bear market for both stocks and bonds. That said, if I'm looking ahead, I'm seeing more risk for recession than I was in the first half of the year when GDP was declining in the first and second quarters. We have the yield curve inverted in a big way. Leading economic indicators are rolling down. Housing is slowing. And so if I just kind of put a bunch of factors together, it just raises more yellow flags of a recession ahead. So what I'm trying to square in my mind is the fact that we're already in an equity bear market. And yes, of course, markets tend to move ahead of the economy. But like, I don't think the recession has started yet. So how do I square the market already being down 20, but with maybe a bear market to come or a recession to come? Yeah. So that's what I've been trying to wrap my head around when it comes to the markets and the economy and putting those two together. Sounds like you need a diversified portfolio. You do. One that can do well in different market environments with pieces of it that will do well in a recession, things that will do well in an expansion. I like it. I like it. So what about inflation? Yeah. So inflation, I think, is really interesting. It's been a question we get maybe most often right now. And I mean, as I did with the outlook, let me just offer one free caveat to that. Is that is I think trading on macro data is super, super hard. And I probably have to credit Howard Marks for influencing my thinking on some of this. But he talks about if you're going to trade on macro data that you have to be right and different from the market expectation. So if you think inflation is going to be 5% and so does everybody else, you have no edge. There's no value to be there. You have to think it's going to be 5 when everyone thinks it's going to be 2 and then it has to be 5 And I would add that you then also have to get right, how is the market then going to respond to that? Because it might not respond as you necessarily think. So that said, if we're thinking about inflation, and I don't necessarily think I've got a particular edge in predicting inflation. But a month ago, when we were getting questions about inflation, I said, okay, what if we just run two simple scenarios? We take inflation today and we just run it forward based on prices increasing either at the post-pandemic average, so that was 0.6% a month, or we assume inflation falls back down to the pre-pandemic average of 0.2%. And I just said, okay, that seems like a reasonable range. Like, Inflation should maybe come down from the post-pandemic, given that supply chains are easing, demand seems to be softening a bit, even though retail sales just came in pretty darn strong. But maybe it doesn't go all the way back to the pre-pandemic levels because there's still kinks and issues to work out. So if that's our range, then we can say, all right, at the end of the year, we can expect inflation around 7 to 8%. And by the middle of next year, middle of 2023, that gives us a range of 2% to call it five and a half. Now, what I've been doing with this is actually leaving that range and that expectation, but tracking it going forward. So trying to do like a real live test. Because look, people on podcasts, people on TV, we get to make predictions all the time, throw it out there willy-nilly. No one holds us accountable. So this is my attempt just to, I mean, I don't know, see how wrong I am in setting these expectations, but just kind of a fun exercise to keep track of it. I love it. You know, I always think I want to do a study on 
the Federal Reserve's projections. And I'm sure somebody has done this, but you know, if you go back like two years, what is the Federal Reserve thinking about inflation, GDP, Fed funds rate, and how that has changed over time? They're so wrong. I mean, I saw a central banker from Europe one time talk about the Fed, talking about the historical numbers, and they're so far off, yet it's amazing how people just feel like they know it all. I mean, they do have the best information and the brightest people, but it's a political machine anyway. It's amazing how far no, they're No, no, that's fine. But look, there's a political element to it possible. But to your point, they exactly. have an army of PhDs. They have so much data. If they can't get it right, either the political thumb is really heavy on that estimate, or that should tell us all, it is really, really, really hard to get inflation and GDP right, because there's a, thousands and thousands of factors that go into it. Yeah. Well, the political side, I mean, it's only political in the sense, I'm not trying to make it sound partisan anyway. It's just that they have to almost, because they're a political creature, by definition, have to lag the data. The data has to like move the public opinion before they move. So that's kind of a good story. I mean, obviously, inflation is most likely peaked and there is in a good case scenario, could even get back to the 2 to 3% zone, kind of a best case scenario. So that's the good side of the story. One question I was just thinking about when it comes to, we talked about asset allocation and market outlooks and the possibility of inflation. Do you ever get the question about real assets? When I talk about real assets, it's a bucket of different things. Obviously, the easy answer is commodities, but it could be you know, real estate investment trust. It could be natural resource stocks. It could be infrastructure. Do you get questions on real assets yourself? And how do you respond to that? Like if they should be used in diversified portfolios? Yeah, we do get it from time to time. And the answer is... It's not something that we've tended to allocate a lot to. And I think part of that is if I look at commodities, they do have a history of doing well when inflation spikes, as they have you know, this past year. And so there's an element of saying, okay, I can use that to help protect my portfolio. And maybe you can look at it as insurance, but like the long-term history of commodities as returns really isn't that compelling. And so for me, I've always looked at it as I'd rather try and get my inflation protection through growth in the capital markets through companies that are growing earnings and dividends over time. Real estate, I think, is interesting because fundamentally, real estate should diversify a stock and bond portfolio. But real estate accessed through the public markets, through something like Vanguard Real Estate ETF, uh, VNQ, tends to be very highly correlated with the stock market and tends to even be more volatile than the stock market, at least over the past 10 years or so. So... I hear the argument for it, but you're not getting the diversification boost from it that you might expect. Yep. You know, it's right on. I do actually like real estate myself, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you really, really think about like what a real estate investment trust should do, it's really kind of a hybrid. It's got a heavy income component and obviously it's equity. So it should have less volatility than the stock market and it should have a stronger diversification benefit, but it doesn't, as you said. So very interesting. The one place you can get that is on the private side. So whether that's through an interval fund, non-traded, you can get those diversification benefits. It comes with higher costs, liquidity constraints. But also right now, if you look at them, there's a huge spread between the public and private markets on the real estate side. A lot of those interval funds, non-traded REITs are up mid-single digits this year, where VNQ is down 20, 25%. So you've got a spread of like 35%. So if you're asking me today, I want to get real estate exposure, I'm sticking with the public markets, even if there is a bit of another leg down. I just think eventually that gap narrows and and somehow in favor of public markets. Juicy. All right. 
you know, Rob and I have like five standard questions and we usually close out the podcast. But I got one more before I hit those five. And so over the years, your business card has said things such as director of research and chief investment officer. So on that point, one of your responsibilities in the situation is obviously it's about the investment process, but it's also about the people in your team. And I'm really curious, what are some of the attributes you look for when you're building out a team and the people on your team? We're all looking for people that are hardworking, intelligent, communicate well. For me, when I'm looking for a new team member, one of the biggest things for me is someone who has the bug for investing in the markets and just has the passion. And I mean, look, that often, you know, for hiring right out of school, maybe they don't have a lot of money to go invest, but do they at least have a paper portfolio? Or are they talking about stocks and you can just tell that they've they've got the bug and they've got the passion because there's plenty of time to learn on the job. There's plenty of courses out there that you can take to get the knowledge, but just do they have the bug and, and are they going to be be curious about it and ask the questions, even if they seem silly, just because they just want to learn more. Yeah. It's not about a job. It's bigger than that when they have that passion, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. So kind of talking about the markets here, going into some of our standard questions. So the first one is, so you've been in industry your entire professional career, and you've been surrounded by a lot of talented people that you've worked with and for, and that you've hired. You've had incredible tools. You spent all your time thinking about the markets. How do you personally invest? I invest in the same stuff that I recommend to our, to our clients and to the readers of the newsletter. That was one of the lessons I've learned from Dan Wiener was if we're going to write about something and we're going to suggest people do it, we better darn be willing to put our own money behind it. So my portfolio looks a heck of a lot like what you'll find in our newsletter and what we write about. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It makes so much sense. I mean, there are various studies that show that you know portfolio managers who you know eat their own cooking yeah. over time tend to perform better. So that's awesome. All right. So another question we like to ask is, obviously, we professionally have an obligation to perform at a high level, never mind for our families, we have to perform at a high level. So what are some of the things that you do to make sure you're performing at a high level, both physically and mentally to, again, ensure that you're performing at a high level? Yeah. So I love the parallel of this question to actually investing. We all know what to do, right? Eat a balanced diet, exercise, get sleep, right? Like it's a pretty simple formula. Same thing with investing, like spend less than you earn, regularly contribute to your 401k, keep costs low. Like the recipe for success is pretty easy. That doesn't actually mean it's easy to do. So I'm not going to try and offer you know physical or mental advice to people. That's not where I am. But one of the things that I do <laughs> that is relevant here is maybe more towards like the mental health kind of family health side is try and defend. I have a toddler. I try and defend pick up from daycare, dinner, and bedtime as much as I can. And we, we being my wife and I have made it, you know, a phone free time. Are we hundred percent no phones every time? No, of course not. But we try very, very hard to make that. Let's be here as a family reading Brown Bear, Brown Bear 25 times tonight. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right on. Cool. All right. The next question, this one could be, I love this question. I think a lot of the guests have loved it. It's been kind of a recent addition and it kind of goes to the spirit of both gratitude and learning. And this could be 
kind of interesting because we've worked together, but you've been around again, a lot of successful people. So, you know, who are you professionally thankful for, including mentors? And what are some of the key lessons you've learned from them? Yeah. I mean, not to make it uncomfortable for you, Rusty, but you were my first mentor, right? I mean, <laughs> as we said, I came out of, you know, unpaid internship in college and turned it into a full-time job. And I moved to Nebraska to work one-on-one with you in a small office in the Haymarket down there in Lincoln. So you absolutely were, you know, the first mentor that I had in this industry. And, you know, a couple of things you taught me was one just about how to evaluate managers and what to look for in managers and how to put them together in a portfolio in terms of do they have predictable behavior being a key question to try and answer. That was a big one that I've taken with me. I was moved to Nebraska right before Lehman went down. So just being able to kind of learn from you during that crash and that crisis and how to try and take advantage of bear markets was a lesson I learned there. The other big one was someone we've mentioned already a couple of times in terms of Dan Wiener and moving to wherever my boss and mentor is. And I work one-on-one with Dan in an office as well. And in addition to the importance of eating your own cooking and investing in what you recommend, a big lesson that I've learned from Dan is just the importance of and how to communicate clearly. From day one, when I first started, he was like, hey, you know a ton about this stuff. You read it all the time. You need to, when you're writing, put dear mom or dear dad at the top of the page and communicate to them. And if you can explain something as if you were trying to explain it just to a family member or a friend, you'll be able to communicate it to other people as well. And so that was a really important lesson that I try and keep in mind when thinking about the newsletter, podcasts, whatever the medium is, just trying to communicate in English. Awesome. Well, I do want to say, you know, when people you know, ask me this question. I mean, there are people who unquestionably have been humongous in my professional career in terms of opening doors and giving me the opportunity. And and then there's a little bit different twist to like who I've learned the most from. And in that case, it's usually um, while I learned from all of those people who opened doors for me, they qualify as mentors as well. It's usually the, the people that I worked with on the research team, investment teams. I mean, we were always testing and pushing each other and asking questions. So in terms of kind of that short list of people who I've learned the most from, it's really a lot of the interactions we had back in the day, you know, and particularly because we work so closely as well. So definitely, um, it's really like the teammates, not just the the people I reported to. But anyway, this is about you. And you just teased on the next question already. And that is like so all the material. I mean, your, your last response, you know, talked about your learning orientation and that you read all this stuff and you have a passion for it. So the next question is like in terms of recommendations for our listeners on what they should be reading or listening to. Do you have favorite books, newsletters, or podcasts? You know, I guess... How should investors really listen and use the financial media at all? Kind of putting that as the backdrop. Yeah, I somehow just put five questions on you at once. You've got 10 seconds. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, look, the financial media is not your friend. Right? It's entertainment. It's not there to help you achieve your investment goals, whether that's funding for college, for a second home, for retirement, you know, whatever it may be. That's not what the media is there to do. Right? It's just not. It's entertainment. It's to sell ads. So keep that in mind. And often on the media, it's just people arguing that just have a different time frame. Someone's a short-term trader, one's a long-term investor. Like, great. In terms of you know recommendations, uh, while we did say that a lot of fun commentaries have kind of been watered down over the years, there's still some really great ones. And that's still kind of a go-to for me for staying in touch with managers and funds in the markets is is reading some of those manager commentaries. So 
I mean, Howard Marks often gets mentioned as you know one of those must read, and his are very good, and I'd highly recommend those if you haven't checked those out. But a couple others that I really enjoy consistently are Bill Nigren of Oakmark, Palm Valley Capital, a couple absolute value small cap guys down in Florida. But then on the other side of the spectrum, the Bailey Gifford long-term global growth team from Scotland, totally different approach and take, but they are very thoughtful in how they communicate their approach and their philosophy to the markets. And it's kind of a nice balance to a Bill Nigren value manager take on things. So you can still find disparate views and different thoughts on the market out there from some really thoughtful managers. Those are great tips, you know, and a lot of good stuff for our show notes too. So that's awesome. Well, shoot, Jeff, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the show today. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at the Independent Vanguard Advisor? Yeah, thanks, Russ. This has been a joy. Really, really great to connect here. And the best way to follow us and to see what we're doing is to check us out at independentvanguardadvisor.com. We do have a free weekly market update available if people want to check it out. And then there is a you know premium level for access to everything that we do, fund ratings, model portfolios, all of that. I am probably the worst millennial. Technically, I'm a millennial, but <laughs> I'm not so sure. My, my social media game needs some improvement in 2023. I'm not a big fan of resolutions, but that might have to be a New Year's resolution for me. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So by the way, that'll be in the show notes. It is advisor ER instead of OR at the end. Although the OR should still get you there. I think I figured out okay. that tech. But yeah, independentvanguardadvisor.com with it. ER, yeah. All right. I have one more question for you. It's coming out of left field here, but basically it's kind of a simple yes or no, and you can expand upon it if you want. So if people ask me who are like my influences, like who's my Mount Rushmore of influences, a money manager. So these are people I don't know directly. So it's not people I worked with. So my Mount Rushmore, it is obviously I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. So you got to put the Brookshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger tandem. I've always been a big fan of ever since I met him at Babson College, Sir John Templeton. It's definitely an influence in the way I think about building portfolios in the markets. I am a multi-asset guy, and David Swenson from Yale is a big influence. And the fourth and final one is, I feel as if for some people it's controversial, like, how could you put that guy in your Mount Rushmore? But I think in terms of just learning some of the stuff that he had written over the years is Jack Bogle. Does he deserve to be on a Mount Rushmore for... You know, particularly somebody who prefers active management like myself. Absolutely. How's that Mount Rushmore sound and Jack Bogle sound? There, I was trying to do something controversial for somebody who covers Vanguard. <laughs> no, I agree. I like that Mount Rushmore. I would definitely put Jack Bogle on it. If you yeah. move towards low cost investing, index investing, even if you're an active person, you can use indexes actively. People do it all the time. But I think the advocacy he had for shareholders and trying to put shareholders first is kind of an underappreciated aspect of what he was about. It wasn't just index fund. It was kind of, if I'm solving for shareholders, this is a vehicle to do it. Yeah. But I think that in addition to that, and I'll have to make sure it's in the show notes because I can't recall the exact title right now, but in terms of just books that were really influential on how I think about markets and even manager selection. So everybody thinks he's just an index guy, but in terms of just thinking about markets and investment managers, I think he had one of the most influential yeah. books so Bogle on mutual funds. I think that was 
That was one that I, I liked of his. I know it may sound that simple. It may have been that one, but I feel like it might have been another title. We'll get it in the show notes for sure. <laughs> there, now people don't have to read the show notes. I just put a tease in. I know, I know. Make them go down there. <laughs> scroll, scroll, scroll. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thanks again. And everybody, that will do it for this week. We'll be back soon. Invest well and be well. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.